Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and your mercy to us, and I pray that you'll bless us as we get into this subject. It's a crucial subject because we're in the end of time, and we just want to praise your name for your goodness and for the great history of this church and its prophetic insights. And I pray this will bolster our faith as well as help us be able to explain it to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I, I really wanted to spend some time today on uh, the book of Revelation and the sanctuary because that is where, uh, and I, you may want to take notes because I don't have handouts, uh, so for whatever that's worth department or get the recording. By the way, I, we make, speakers make no money on recordings. Uh, basically, the uh, ABC and the people that record them take that money and they put it back into more recording equipment. So I just want everybody to know that this isn't about me making any money. You pay my salary through the tithe, so I'm happy for that. Yeah, you're very kind. Um, one, there's an obvious fact about Revelation that sometimes goes missed as people get into the book of Revelation. And that is the very first chapter is the introduction right into the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, as Seventh-day Adventists, we are unique in the concept of the heavenly sanctuary. I say we're unique. I think it was er the early church understood it well. You have the whole book of Hebrews. But what you haven't had in the Protestant Reformation was a return to the concept that the heavenly sanctuary is a reality in the plan of salvation. And of course you don't understand the heavenly sanctuary unless you first of all understand the earthly sanctuary. Because the earthly sanctuary is the symbol, it's the, it's the temporary uh, picture. Bless your heart. Thank you. Thank, yeah. I, I promise I'll be on time tomorrow. And... Uh, <laughs> Thank you so much. What's that? Room stretcher. Oh. Thank you, uh, Justin. Um, and when I learned this some years ago, it really unlocked the book of Revelation for me in a way that has been such a, a blessing to me. I will tell you that context is just about everything. The reason there is so much doctrinal mess in the world, not only sometimes in the Adventist church, but outside the Adventist church, is because of a thing that people ignore the context. Uh, you can just to make, you can make something say just about anything if you take it out of its context. So when you're introduced into the book of Revelation, um, it automatically introduces you to Jesus in a priestly garment <laughs> And the first place you see Jesus is where? Candlesticks. That's right. So do I know where I'm at in the heavenly sanctuary? Because I have an earthly map. Now some people say, well, you know, there's no heavenly sanctuary. It's all a mirage. I'm sure that there's a lot I don't understand about the heavenly sanctuary. But the, the, the apostles called it a copy a shadow, and there's one other one there. Yeah, a type or um, pattern. That's the word I was looking for. 
So those three things, what is a pattern? The ladies know what a pattern is. Um, how many ladies, though, would wear a pattern? No. I know you wouldn't. But that pattern becomes very important to be able to understand the final product that you're going to get. Uh, how about a shadow? If I held my hand and you could see the shadow on here of my hand, what would the shadow tell you about my hand? It tell you some things. It would, it would tell you the shape, am I right? At least the outline of it. It would tell you that it moves. It would tell you some, some things maybe about its dexterity. But there's a lot of things it wouldn't tell you. If you've never seen my hand before, right, and you've only seen the shadow, there's a lot of things it won't tell you. Um, so you've got a shadow, got a pattern, a shadow, and then you've got the word copy. Now, we're familiar with that because we live in a world of copy machines. When I first started out in the ministry, now this will really date me really good. <laughs> These young guys, they'll smile. They don't even know what it is. Mimeograph. Exactly. Mimograph machine. You ever got your hands messed up with the ink of that stuff, you know? <laughs> I got to get the bulletin. So you my wife, she types that thing up. You don't dare make a mistake because then you have to redo the whole thing, you know? And, and it's done on one of these expensive kind of a whatever ink deals or that you have to put on them. And then you, I can hear that thing doing it now. You crank out the mimograph machines. But thank the Lord that copy machines, this really dates you, doesn't it? Copy machines, <laughs> wonderful copy machines. So we understand that today. So if I put something in and I get a copy of that, then I have what that looks like. What could you think of in the heavenly sanctuary that might be a copy, in the earthly sanctuary that might be a copy of the heavenly? Ten Commandments. Somebody said it over here. You're absolutely right. The Ten Commandments are a copy. I, uh, I had somebody one time that was uh, telling me that they didn't, um, you know, they didn't buy into the, the Ten Commandments, that that was all done away with. And I said to them, they said it was, you know, it was done away with when the tabernacle went out of business. I said, let's just say you're right. Let's just say that, that that was Moses' deal, and you're right, and it just went out of the way. But I have a question to ask you. And then I read to them out of the book of Revelation, chapter 11, where it sees the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony. I said, that's the Ten Commandments right there. So I said, the question is, is not what you're going to do with Moses' Ten Commandments, but what are you going to do? That was only a copy. What are you going to do with the heavenly Ten Commandments? And really, that's our challenge to our Protestant brothers and sisters and evangelicals. The issue for them is, what are you going to do with the heavenly Ten Commandments, of which the earthly is simply a copy? They don't have an answer for that. And the other thing is, if, if the law of God matters then the Sabbath matters. If the law of God doesn't matter, the Sabbath doesn't matter. Okay. What, could, what might there be that might be a pattern in the earthly sanctuary? 
What could you think of that might be a pattern? What was that? Yeah, the outline. The whole outline could be, you know. You can see the outline in your own mind. It's so simple. Can't you? That's, that's a good pattern. That's right. And um, so you got pattern, you got a shadow, you got copy. So we can only see, as Paul says, through a glass darkly, but there are, here's my point, for what you see in the heaven, in the earthly sanctuary, there is a reality in the heavenly sanctuary. It may not look like I can envision it, but there's a reality there. Does that make sense? And the function is a reality. And I say hallelujah for that because it means everything to us and to our salvation. So in the first chapter, he sees Jesus and he sees him. The first place that he sees him, he sees him in the uh, at the candlesticks. I'm going to need to boot this up here if you don't mind me doing that just for a moment. Um, and and that's what you see as you go through as you go through the the whole entire book of Revelation. What you're doing is watching Jesus move through the heavenly sanctuary. Now, that has some huge implications. And one of those implications is, I hope this will work. There we go. One of those implications is that the sanctuary is prophetic in and of itself. So when the book of Revelation says this is the revelation of Jesus, it is the revelation of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary moving through time and everything that he's doing there is having a, uh, a counter on the earth, an effect on the earth. So as he moves through the sanctuary, uh, he's moving through time. So the sanctuary is prophetic. How many, how many sections of the sanctuary can you think of? I heard one, two, and three. I heard somebody say two, I think, and then corrected themselves to three. How many agree with three? Let me see your hand. You're right. It's three. Okay, what, what are they? The outer court, which is what we call... By the way, could you see everything that was going on there? Yeah. Could, they, could anybody participate? They brought a lamb, they brought a sacrifice, a bread offering, whatever they brought. It, they could participate there. You could see the sacrifice. Uh, and we know that that altar of burnt offering represents the ministry of Jesus at the cross of Calvary. Now, I, I believe that Jesus, once that sin entered and once the Father and the Son uh, had made that covenant and the Father decided to give His Son, which was not easy, I don't have the reference right off, but there's a picture that I think the Lord for the spirit of prophecy it just gives us some insights that are, you just don't get anywhere else. But it pictures the Son, pictures the Son going to the Father. The Bible says that the Son was slain before the foundations of the earth, meaning that this thing had been set and the decision had been made. Goes to the Father and Father embraces Him. And now these are my words. 
and doesn't let him go, says no three times. And finally, the father says, I'll give you up. Jesus is a gift to the human race for eternity. Um, I had a teacher, it shows you how important teachers are. Well, I've never forgotten it, it was good. Um, but he said, you know, when you get to the kingdom of heaven and you're walking down the streets of gold and you're walking with one of the angels and Jesus is up ahead, that you'll look at the angel and you'll look at Jesus and you'll nudge the angel and you'll say to the angel with a great deal of joy, He is one of us. And He will always be one of us. And uh, I, I believe that Jesus showed up down here and was working all the way through human history. I think He shows up with Israel. The New Testament in Corinthians says that, that Jesus was the rock, says He was the one in the cloud, that He was the one that was actually directing Israel. The Shekinah glory was the Shekinah glory of the Savior Himself who would someday give His life for Israel. Uh, that's an amazing thing. So when, when someone says, uh, I mean, so when the book of Revelation says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, is the revelation of Jesus and His work for us in the heavenly sanctuary that's going on right now. And it's a revelation of Him, not only in His work for us, but moving through time and through the heavenly sanctuary. So once Jesus' sacrifice was complete on earth, then he disappears into what? He disappears into the holy place in heaven. And how many of you have seen him there? Can I see your hands? No hands. I haven't seen him there either, except I have seen him by faith. And when the priest left the courtyard and went into the first compartment of the sanctuary, when he went into there, how many of the Israelites could see His ministry in there? None. They couldn't go in there, number one. And number two, there were two veils that separated the eyesight. So the only way they could follow what the priest was doing for them was to follow it by faith. They had to trust that He was doing what He was supposed to do. And that's the only way you can see Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. You have to follow Him there by faith. Now, our faith has evidence, of course. We have evidence of what Jesus has done for us and is doing for us. So, if you look at the sanctuary from a prophetic standpoint, it is historical, by the way, which is the Protestant. It's not futuristic and it's not preterist. It is showing you what has been. It's going to show you what is and what shall be. That's the Protestant position of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So you take from the fall of Adam and Eve to the ascension of Jesus, and that's really what that courtyard represents in the ministry of Jesus. That's prophetic, and it's already passed. Some people, and I say this sweet kindness, some people just live in the courtyard. Some people's minds just stay in the courtyard. Some people just just focus on, well, the once saved, always saved concept is just basically a focus on the altar of burnt offering. 
And a lot of people just, you know, they get baptized. Well, praise God, He covers me. I'm okay. It's, you know, there's not a lot I need to do. But there is a lot more to do. If you heard the early morning preaching by Cameron DeVazier, uh, he just did a good job uh, showing us from Scripture that the Christian walk is a continual walk and a continual growth and a continual, it, it's just been really good. So at any rate, that, so now you start another prophetic ministry of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary, and that starts from His ascension, or we might say from the cross for lack of better terminology, from His ascension all the way to where? That's right, 1844, because 1844 starts the final phase of the ministry of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. So the Holy of Holies goes from 1844, the fulfillment of the 2300-year prophecy, it goes from there to the coming of Jesus and the close of probation and the end of time. So we know where we're at. We're in the Holy of Holy time period of the heavenly sanctuary. And what's very important is to remember where these prophecies of Jesus were given. Because what you, you watch Jesus, he'll go, from, he'll go from the candlesticks. And where do you see Jesus next? Where do you see him next? Chapter 4, 5. You see the Lamb of God, absolutely right. He's right there. The Lamb of God is right there, and he's on the throne, and he appears as a lamb slain. And, uh, but there's a very fascinating thing. If you... Uh, if you open your Bible, if you, if you have your Bible here, and it'll be a good thing to have that, I want you to go with me to chapter 4, if you don't mind, and of uh, Revelation. And I'd like to show you something there. This, is, this today is kind of the preliminary of where I'm getting into because I want you to be able to know the context. I have a thing about context. All right, if you look at chapter... If you look at chapter 4, you will, you will see uh, John's call to be there. And then look at verse chapter 4, verse 4. Sure, I got the right spot here. Uh, you'll, see, you'll see the picture of the throne, 24 thrones around it. And then verse 5, I won't get into that. I got some stuff I want to show you on that one. Um, well, I skipped the spot I want. I didn't put my finger right on it. Um, no, it talks about the candlesticks here. Verse 5. Yes, right there. Thank you. Verse 5. Out of the throne came flashes of lightning. Now he's at the throne, right? That's what we're being introduced to. We've already been induced to the candlesticks. But notice this, that out of the throne came flashes of lightning, sounds, and peals of thunder, and there were seven what? So what is that? It's the candlesticks. So where am I? Somebody said the table is showbread, and I think you're absolutely right. Because in front of the candlesticks, the candlesticks sat on the south side of the sanctuary. 
And so it pictures the candlesticks in front of the throne. It doesn't tell you the throne is the table of showbread. But let me, let me share something with you I think that's very, very fascinating that, um, that's been a really blessing to me personally. Uh, let's take a look at the table of showbread. Uh, in its simplicity, what does the table of showbread? How many legs does the table of showbread have? Four. How many stacks of cakes does the table of showbread have? Two. Two. Stacks. Am I right? Yeah. And um, it also has a, a crown around it, but some of the other furniture has a crown around it too. So that's pretty simple. Two stacks, a table with four legs. Um, you are also introduced into this chapter to these marvelous beings that have these unique faces. One has the face of a lion, the other has the face of a, and the other has the face of a, and the other one has the face of a, okay? Let's keep that in mind. And now go back to Ezekiel chapter 1, if you have your Bible. Uh, if, you, if you go down to verse 4, on what side of the sanctuary is the table of showbread? The north side. Verse 4, As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the what? North. north. And a great cloud of fire flashing continually and bright light around it. And in its midst something like a glowing metal in the midst of the fire. So he's seeing this, uh, this coming, this marvelous scene coming close to him. Looks like kind of like a tornado, whirling wind. I, I went to, I've, I've looked at artists to see how artists try to capture this. This is almost impossible to capture in any kind of artwork. Uh, some of them have done some really nice work, beautiful work, but it's hard to find just the, just the right uh, picture of this. So you have to use your imagination a little bit. Within there, verse 5, within it there were figures resembling four living beings. How many, how many beings did you see in chapter uh, five, 4 of Revelation? Four. four. And this was their appearance. They had a human form... Each of them had four faces. Now, we're not told that in the book of Revelation, and I don't know why. There's mysteries. I don't always know why. I don't know if it's just the way John saw them when they were pictured. But here, each of them appears to have four faces and four wings. Their legs were what? Verse 7. What? Isn't that odd? They have a form of a human being, but their legs are straight. What kind of legs does a table have? Whatever it's worth. And their feet were like a calf's hoof, and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. I've spent some time here trying to grasp all of this, and it's really amazing stuff. Uh, and I, don't, I can't put it all together. Their faces did not turn... When they moved, each went straight forward. Try to work on that one in your imagination. And then it says, uh, they had the face of a man, four had the face of a lion, and so forth and so on. Uh, verse 11, 
Such were their faces, their wings spread out above, each had two touching another being, two covering their bodies, and each went straight forward wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go, without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings was something that like, looked like burning coals of fire. Does anyone remember the description of Lucifer? And God said that you have been where? Yeah, exactly. Isn't that fascinating? And the fire was bright, lightning and flashing from the fire. For And it talks about how these beings ran like bolts of lightning, which is hard to imagine. And as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was a wheel. And it talks about the wheels. And I'm not going to get into a lot of that. I want to get on down to the next part I want to share. Verse 22, you there? Now over the heads of the living beings, over where? And they have what kind of legs? Get the picture? Wings are stretched out. Over top of their head is this, something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal spread out over their heads. I believe this is the crystal sea that you see in the book of Revelation. So this picture is a picture of these four beings with straight legs holding over their heads this crystal platform or crystal sea like a table. And what's on top of the crystal sea? I also heard this, uh, let me go on down, uh, the, what's on top of this is none other than the throne of God. And you, if you get down, there it is, verse 26. Now above the spence that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli. I probably enunciated that wrong, but my Hebrew is not very good, doctor. How would you say that? Put him on the spot. Huh? No, I'm talking, oh, the lapsus luzuli is sapphire? Okay, good, thank you. I, hey, feel free to get in here anytime and help me out. Okay. Kind of a blue. Dark, dark blue. Okay. Interesting. All right. Sapphire is considered to be blue, so this is some kind of a precious stone that's bluish. He's saying... They're both precious. They're both precious. Okay. He's talking about one of our physicians here who has... Oh. Yeah. Dark blue. Okay. Fascinating. Sometime when you go to see him, take a picture of it. Get a slide. I could put that in my series... Uh, appearance and on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man and I noticed from the appearance of his loins upwards something like glowing metal like fire if you compare this it looks like the Savior in the book of Revelation so here you have these four beings holding up this flat um, 
expanse, and on top of this expanse is the throne of God. Uh, and that's an amazing picture. And I think that's why I believe that in the, and it's consistent with the book of Revelation because the only piece of furniture that's not mentioned in the book of Revelation is the table of showbread, but it's in the right order. So you go from the south to the north, which is the throne of God, and he assumes you understand that that's the throne, and then you go to that to the altar of incense, which is mentioned, and then the ark of the testimony, which is also mentioned uh, there. Yes, please. Yes, yes. For whatever reason, the north is pictured as where God comes from, where His seat is. And uh, He also, when Jesus comes again, He comes from the east. And, uh, of course, the enemy of souls is always trying to counterfeit uh, some of that. So back to my theme here of what, watching Jesus move through the heavenly sanctuary. So what you do is you see Him go to the candlesticks. What prophecy does he give from the candlesticks? The seven churches. That not only has counsel for all time, but we also recognize that the seven churches have a prophetic content. And within that prophetic content, we believe that we're living in the last part of that prophetic content. Now, if you go to the throne, table of showbread, what what? What prophecy does Jesus give? What comes from the table of showbread? From the throne. The seven seals. And uh, that's a powerful picture. And that also ends with the coming of Jesus and the preparation of the saints for the coming of Jesus. That's a marvelous study in and of itself. Then the next time that you see Jesus, you see Him... Now, I, this doesn't say it's Jesus this time. It says an angel, but well, let me go there. If you go to chapter 8, back to Revelation here. Revelation, what did I say? Revelation chapter 8, and I think I want to look at verse 8. That, that right? Yeah. No, I don't want to look at verse 8. I want to look at verse... Um, I want to look at verse 2. I want to look at verse 3. Um, <clears throat> I don't have time to get in. I, I wish I had time to get into the silence of that seventh seal. But I'll give you a hint. It's silent in heaven because of what's going on in the earth. And, and how does Jesus... I, now, I might as well do it now, right? I might as well do it. Yeah, I might as well. well I, I used to puzzle this. What in the world, Lord? Half hour, silence in heaven. Why are you telling us that? I mean, He just told us that Jesus is coming in the midst of the earth's chaos. And, you know, John sees the, Jesus coming and He says those solemn words, Who will be able to stand and then you get chapter, you know, the next chapter that tells you God will seal people and they will be ready to stand. Isn't that good news for us? And then you come to the, this part and it says, and the seventh seal was open and there's silence in heaven. And you want to say, 
that, that's kind of an anticlimactic thing. These, these seals were pretty powerful stuff. You know, these horses come running out, and I won't get into all of that. If I'm not careful, I will, because I just can't help myself. But <laughs> at, at any rate, you got the horses coming out, and you, then you got, you know, the delay, and then you got the chaos, and, and then you get this silence. And then it struck me, there's silence in heaven because there's a shout on the earth. You have the trumpet of the archangel. You have the voice of the archangel. You have a lot of powerful noise down here. Not noise in the wrong sense, but marvelous music. And what is God doing down here? This is not anticlimactic at all. It is the climactic because God is resurrecting the dead. So that's why there's silence in heaven. Anybody left up there is standing down here going like this (laughs) on their tiptoes. They're quiet as they're watching. All the action of the universe is happening right here as Jesus, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, resurrects the dead. And Satan's last seal is broken. Everything he's tried, I mean, he's pushed back in this whole battle. And the the only thing he's got left are the prison house that he's got all the dead locked up into. And he's saying, you can't have them, you can't have them. And Jesus just brushes him aside and resurrects the dead. And Satan is really out of business now. And that's good news for all of us. So anyway, silence. So you have the seven seals come from that throne and then you come to you come to this and the picture here is just a little different. If you look at verse uh, verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar holding the golden censer and much incense was given to him. Why do I think that this angel can be pictured as Jesus? Now, some of our evangelical friends, they worry about Adventists when we suggest that Jesus is Michael the archangel. Uh, And the reason they worry, and I I don't mind their worrying, I don't agree with their worrying, but I don't mind them worrying, because they're worried that we're trying to make Jesus a created being. And Adventists have never been there. We don't see Jesus as a created being. Jesus is from eternity. He always has been. He always will be. Um, there's never a time when Jesus was not. There never will be a time when He will not be. Um, you know, the, the evolutionists, they like to do this. They like to say, you know, when you back them finally in a corner, and they, you say, okay, well, tell me where all the intelligence came to put that DNA together. Where did that come from? I mean, you know, where did the power come to put all that together? And they, they look at you and they're out of business. The only thing they have left is say, well, where did your God come from? And you should have a ready answer. Our God didn't come from anywhere because He's always been. There was never a time when He was not. Now, then you say kindly, I know that my small brain and your small brain can't comprehend that, but that's the truth. (laughs) There's never been a time He wasn't. He always has been. He is from eternity to eternity. In fact, when you go and you look at the Old Testament and about the declarations of God about Himself, sometimes He talks about that He is, he is eternal. But then He uses, in a couple of three places, He uses that picture that He is from eternity to eternity. If you're from eternity, there was never a time when you were not. If you're to eternity, there's never a time that you will not be. 
And when we're saved in the kingdom of heaven, Ellen White says that you measure your life with the life of God. Think about that. Eternity. No more old age positive. Amen. <laughs> All right, back to uh, my text here. Now, I was going to give the reasons why I think. Uh, I don't have. Uh, if you want to do an interesting study, go to um, go to the book of Daniel. And where it says, I'm trying to remember the, the text right off, but where it says that um, the angel comes and talks to, come right on through, doctor. Uh, the angel comes and he's, he's, he's told Daniel, he says, I have, no one stood with me but Michael, one of the chief princes. If you want to do an interesting word study, take that word chief, you can look up easily in the Hebrew, and run that back through the Old Testament, and you'll find that it applies to God applies it to Himself. One of the chief princes means that He's one of the three, and He uh, is part of that great Godhead that we serve and worship. Um, Jesus often appeared as an angel in the Old Testament. Um, do you remember um, uh, Gideon? He appeared to Gideon and the statement he made about himself. He says, I saw the angel of the Lord and then Gideon says, I'm going to die, you know, kind of. I'm afraid. Or Manoah's, Manoah, who was uh, Samson's father, and his wife said to him, I, he says, I'm going to die. I've seen God. She says, well, you're not going to die. You'd already died. I mean, these are my words. <laughs> she said, don't worry. You'd already been dead if he was going to, uh, if he had that kind of a thing toward you. So there's many times that Jesus appears as an angel um, and just because he appears as an angel, just because he appears as a man doesn't mean he was a created being in that sense. So I believe that this is, is Michael the archangel. It's um, the, uh, representing the Lord. And he stood at the altar. Here are some other reasons. He stands at the altar holding what? A golden censer. And how, what kind of incense was given to him or how much? A lot that he might add it to the prayers of the saints on the golden altar, which is where? And the smoke of the incense of the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. It's obvious this angel is doing a work of intercession. Uh, he's an intercessor. He's interceding for all of us before the throne of God. He's taking your prayers. This is one of the most beautiful passages in the book of Revelation because all of us in this room pray. We've all prayed and we pled with God and we've asked God uh, for prayer, I mean for things. How many have asked God for something today? Of course. Yes, we, we want to ask the Lord and He loves for us. He invites us to pray. And the picture here is that your prayers are not lost. You know, hallelujah. Our prayer, Christian prayers, we don't need to be like the Buddha. I all do respect. We don't need to be like the Buddhists or the Hindus. You know, every time the flag waves, they, they put a little prayer on it and they think the prayer is there. No, we're God's children. God, God wants to relate to us as children. And those prayers that we have have an impact in heaven. And the Bible is assuring us the work of Jesus. I don't know why people say they can't understand the book of Revelation. Well, the book of Revelation is all about what Jesus is doing for us in the heavenly sanctuary. 
And one of those things is very something that we do every day of our life, and that is to pray and to ask God for help and blessings and whatever you've asked Him for today. That prayer went right through the ministry of Jesus. And what uh, Alan White makes a parallel statement to that, support statement, that Jesus, that incense, that sweet-smelling incense, is His own pure life. Isn't that wonderful? So he, he takes His own life, presents our prayers as though they were His own. And do you think that the Father loves to answer those prayers? He loves to answer prayer. Yeah, amen is right. Uh, so that picture is one of the most beautiful pictures, I believe. And it is from, it is from that altar of incense that the prophecy of the seven trumpets was given. The seven trumpets are really interesting, and they have also been the focus of some pretty ugly attacks on Adventists. Um, Ellen White basically endorses the fulfillment of, of the seven trumpets that you find the Millerites were preaching, and I'll get into that later. And, and you can get on the Internet if you want, uh, I'd suggest you not waste your time, but, uh, you know, the Internet's become the new television. It's the new authority. If it's on the Internet, it's got to be the truth, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, it, yeah, but it's, at, at any rate, they, they attack and they attack the dates and all that kind of things. It never happened. It's not true. When you get done with this, I'm going to show you that the prophets are always right. They're always right. We're, we're on really good, solid ground. These folk out there haven't quite caught up with it. I mean, got some stuff that I just got not long before I got here. And uh, it's just amazing um, why we should have confidence in these prophecies and why we should have confidence that the Seventh-day Adventist Church, as pitiful as it is, because we're all pitiful, as flawed as we are, as human as we are, it's still God's remnant church. Amen. And it's still His church, and He's, he's using this prophecy. And it, it's, it's just a, an amazing thing. And, uh, and we'll get into that prophecy. It's really, uh, it's one of the longer ones, and particularly the sixth trumpet. You will find something very interesting about the sixth church and the sixth trumpet and the sixth seal. Um, they are all transitional they transition you from the holy place into the most holy place. Because all of these prophecies given in the first compartment of the sanctuary in, cover the entire history of the Christian church from, the, from Christ to the coming of the Lord. So that means that they cover not only the holy place time period, but they're also covering the most holy place time period. Most of the prophecies take place in the holy place with the transition of the sixth one and then the, the final one, the final seal, the final trumpet, the final church takes place in the holy of holies. And so seeing that transition uh, is, is really very important. Um, 
I had something else I wanted to go along with that, and it skipped my mind here all of a sudden. It's what happens when you get gray hair for some reason. Um, and then, of course, uh, and at the end of the seven trumpets, you find the text that transitions you into the Holy of Holies so that chapter 12 through 18, 19, all take place in the Holy of Holies. Uh, those great prophecies do. Oh, here's what I want. This is very important. Have you ever heard somebody tell you that the trumpets are, are all taking place down in the end of time, that they're somehow uh, goes along with the seven plagues? You know why people make that mistake? Context. Where is the prophecy of the seven trumpets given? In the holy place. And if the sanctuary is prophetic and time, and it is, then you cannot take the trumpets and lump them all together and put them down in the end of time. Following me? That's why context is important. And that's why the context of the heavenly sanctuary is important. So when people do that, what they do is they uproot the trumpets. They pull them up out of the ground in which they were planted. And then they try to replant them down in the Holy of Holies. The, they're given from the altar of incense. The altar of incense is in the holy place of the sanctuary. And the holy place of the sanctuary is in a certain time period. And... You have the same principle with the seven churches and the seven seals and the seven trumpets as you have in the book of Revelation where you have Daniel 2, Daniel 7. We often call that principle repeat and enlarge. And that's exactly what you're getting in the book of Revelation. So the seven trumpets cannot be the plagues down in the end of time. They have to be over the historical time of the Christian church. All right, uh, maybe I should stop. And what time am I supposed to quit? Three fifteen. Oh, okay. Well, we could go. We could go. Maybe I'll just stop and see if you have any any questions at that at this point. You've been pretty pretty quiet. Yes. Revelation eight verse um, the altar of incense, which was before the throne. Okay, the altar of incense, which um, was before the throne. That's verse Three. Your map is the earthly sanctuary, and that map is taking you through the heavenly sanctuary. So the first place I see Jesus is at the candlesticks. All right? So I don't have to say, where is that? That's positioned in the south piece. And the candlesticks sit right in front of the table of showbread, which is in the north. So I have the south and the north. 
the, table, the altar of incense doesn't set in front of either one of those. It sets at a triangle, if you please. It sets to the west, and uh, so it sets at a point in front of the curtain that separates the two. Um, so the throne, but we're using the throne in both chapter 4 and chapter 8. I, you see what my question is? No, I may have missed your question. I may not have followed your question. Help me out. Um, if the throne is the table of showbread in chapter 4, why is the throne now in the most holy place in chapter 8? Oh, I see. Good question. Excellent, excellent question. All right. I'm glad you asked that. That's really where I need to go. So one of the, one of the attacks on the Adventist church was that uh, by a person I'll leave unnamed at the moment, but had more impact than they should have had. And it was really an attack on the heavenly sanctuary. And, and they said, well, that, uh, the throne is in the Holy of Holies. It's not in the first compartment of the sanctuary. And a lot of people didn't have a good answer because they hadn't thought about the table of showbread being the throne of God. But the answer to that is simply this. The throne of God has wheels and it moves. So he moves and there's a vision and I don't have uh, text for you, but there's a vision uh, Ellen White had and it's a correct vision, just really supports scripture where she saw the throne in the holy place became empty and it moves to the Holy of Holies. Remember that? And when she sees that, she says, there are some people that stayed in the Holy of Holies worshiping around that empty throne. When by faith they should have followed Jesus into the Holy of Holies. So this then is a view of the time when it has moved. That's correct. So this would be a day of atonement time in chapter 8. Well... No, you're still, in, you're still in the first compartment of the sanctuary. So let me back up. This, it's a good question. It's fair. You're still in the first compartment of the sanctuary. So all three of these prophecies, the churches, the trumpets, and the seals, I got them out of order, um, all three of those prophecies are given in the context of the first compartment of the sanctuary and in that prophetic time period. So... Uh, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't matter. But if the thrones are ready when, in the most holy place, then that would indicate... No, it's not, it's not there when it's given. So if I'm in the time period, if I'm in the time period of the first compartment of the heavenly sanctuary, I'm in the time period when the throne is at the table showbread. The throne doesn't move until you get to the end of the 2300 days, and then it moves into the Holy of Holies. So when these prophecies are given, they're given in the context of that first compartment. Okay, I got, I got people going to help me out here. Or... I just want to make a comment. But this is given during the seventh seal when the heaven is silent for half an hour. But our prayers are still being ministered to and going to the altar, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where the throne is now. So that's the throne referenced here. The 
Okay, I, I see another hand. I, I think I follow your question I, down. I, I totally okay. Just from my understanding, from from totally wiped my black. Oh my! Oh, Got you raised the razor. You're saying that the table of showbread, which which when you walk into the sanctuary, the table of showbread was on the right hand side, and the center was. The altar of incense, and on the right, on the left, was the, the um, candlestick. You're saying that the table of showbread represented the throne of God. Mm-hmm. Correct. That's why I took you to Ezekiel. One. Yeah. What what you have in what you have the parallels what you have in Revelation chapter four and five is you have the four beings with the four faces yes. you have the same in in Ezekiel chapter one except Ezekiel chapter one and you also have the crystal sea in the book of Revelation and in in Ezekiel chapter one you have the picture of these four beings holding up the crystal sea above their head yes. and the throne of God on top of that which mimics the table of showbread and when you take the table of showbread and you apply that to chapter 5 you see God the Father on that throne two stacks of of uh, cakes and who do you see beside him you see the lamb as though he were slain so you have the father and the son on the throne represented by the bread of life and the table of showbread now that throne will switch into the holy of holies uh, at uh, the end of the 2300 days but um, that's what you see in in the first compartment of the sanctuary with the table of showbread at least that's what I see Daniel 7 9 that's when the judgment begins and the throne is on wheels and that's when it moves yeah good point yeah his point was if you go to Daniel 7 and you go to the transition uh, of the end of the 2300 days, you'll see the picture of the throne having wheels and it moves and God uh, sets up His throne and takes the others down. Her, let me finish her question because it's a good question and I don't know that I have an absolute answer. Again, we're dealing with patterns, we're dealing with shadows, we're dealing with... Uh, that, that's not exact. Her question was, if you have the, if you have the altar of incense, and in your mind you can see where the altar of incense is. I don't have to picture that out, you know where that's at. Uh, and it's going up before the throne. The picture in our minds, this shows you what assumptions does to all of us. The assumption is that that incense is going up over the curtain, over the curtain right? How many of you have seen the pictures like that? I have too. The Bible doesn't say that. It just says it ascends with the prayers of the saints. So those prayers can be going to this throne as well as going to that throne. Now, and the and interesting in the book of Hebrews, um, the apostle Paul puts the puts the uh, altar of incense in the holy of holies, which is kind of interesting. So the altar of incense is one of those uh, parts of the furniture that has a has a work in both compartments. So the in, the, what the important thing is that the incense that's ascending to the throne of God is going to the throne, whether it's sitting in the holy place or whether it's sitting in the most holy place. The fact is there's no intercession with the Father without the slain lamb on the throne with the Father.
That's the point. There's a good question, though. And I... Along with that is, is the whole pattern part. Mm -hmm. you know, and, I, and I kind of remember Alan White describing the, the smoke as going in and covering the mercy seat. Mm -hmm. So as though, and that's where the Shekinah was. So even in the earthly counterpart courtyard period, we could say, of the sanctuary model, the throne was seen as in the most holy place where the Shekinah was. Am I misunderstanding that? Well, I think what well, I, I think what's fair I, to say. No, no, you're you're, you're thinking, and that's it's, and yeah, no, it's idea. you're thinking. I don't have a trouble with a movable throne. Yeah, here here's the point. The point is how much of the how much of the time period was spent in the courtyard in the ministry of the altar of burnt offerings all year long. Am I right? How much time was spent ministry in the holy place? And also on the incense is filling not just the holy of holies, the incense is filling the entire sanctuary. So it, it doesn't go like this, it goes like this. So how often then was the holy of holies used? Once a year. Even though it was only used once a year, did it still have a relationship and a function to the first compartment? That makes sense? Yeah. So, because what's being sat, the blood that's being put on the altars of the, of the uh, altar of incense is recording, waiting for the day when that will be obliterated. Yes? Revelation 5, 8 says, that the altar of incense represents the prayers of the saints. The saints. What you just said, I didn't quite. What did you hear me say? What I heard you say was that the altar of incense had another function other than being the prayers of the saints. Um. I, I didn't mean to say that, but I should have said that. Uh, the altar, the altar of incense has four horns. On those four horns, every time there was a sacrifice out in the courtyard, the priest brought a touch of that blood, and he touched it to the horns of the altar of incense. And the incense, of course, represents the prayers of God's people. So if you're out here in the courtyard and you sacrificed an animal as a symbol of asking forgiveness, you're ask, actually praying and you're saying, Lord, please forgive me for what I did. And then the priest brings that record of that prayer, places it there, and the incense then constantly goes up, which represents the intercessory ministry of Jesus. Okay? Okay. Yes. I think the reference with the moving the people moving page sixty. Somebody will get it for us real quick nowadays. That's great. Thank you. All right, yes. Chapter ten in the very writings also at, at the end of the twenty three hundred days, chapter ten. Okay. All right, good. All right, I hope you'll I hope you'll read that. I I hope I inspire you to do some reading on your you don't have to agree with me on everything, it's okay. Uh, but 
My point is that there, the, the big point is that Jesus has a ministry. And if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand it in the context of the heavenly sanctuary. And if you want to understand the seven trumpets, which we're going to get into, you cannot take them out of the context of the heavenly sanctuary. You've got to keep them in the context of the ministry of Jesus because Jesus is really making these prophecies. He's making the prophecy of the seven churches. He's making the prophecy of the seven seals. He's making the prophecies of the seven trumpets. And of course, we could get into the other part of the book of Revelation. I had somebody, I think I mentioned that in my sermon on, on Friday night, but somebody had uh, written me, and they, they were well-meaning, so I'm not being negative here, but uh, we we're getting ready to do the Unlock Revelation. And they said, look, you know, we're just going to talk about Jesus. We're not going to talk about all these beasts, and we're not going to talk about all these things and so forth. Well, I think that you could preach the beast without preaching the revelation of Jesus. Could you not? You probably could. But it's really impossible to preach the revelation of Jesus without the beast and everything that goes with it. You have to have all of that. Because Jesus said, this is about me. This is a revelation about who I am and what's going to take place. And Jesus himself is prophetic. In fact, when he was on the road to Emmaus, what did he do to convince these two disciples whose spirits were down in the dumps and whose faith had been shattered? What did he do? The Bible says he began explaining who the Messiah was from Moses all the way down through. And that's what the book of Revelation does. And that's why it gives us confidence that we're worshiping the real Messiah because in the end of time, there's going to be a false Messiah. So anyway, I think that it's a good uh, point. Unless you have, I got another two or three minutes, but I think it's a good place, place to end. If you have a question, I'll take that and then we'll get into Well, I always Trumpets thought the tomorrow. sanctuary uh, was to show us our journey with Jesus from our baptism on through to how important our baptism is. It's like a to me, it's like a pattern of what is and what is to come for us. And so all the, the, the extra thing of it being His throne, I think, is even more beautiful. Uh, it certainly has that application. You can certainly apply it to your own walk with Christ where you have a conversion experience, and then you go through a sanctification experience, and then by the grace of God and the coming of the Lord, you go through a glorification experience. That's the part we all really want. But you can't get that part unless you go through the other parts first. So there's a walk. But it's not just a spiritual application. There's a reality that's making that spiritual application a reality in our own lives. And, so, and that's the joy of knowing that when I pray that I have a temple. I mean, if I... Oh, I got two minutes. Listen, I was going to quit, wasn't I? Uh, uh, here, here's the thing. Satan wants to counterfeit that whole thing. Now, I say this with sweet kindness, but there are millions of Christians today that go to church and they go and see a temple on an altar and believe that the sacrifice of Christ is being given right there through the wafer, through the wine, and they think that's a reenactment every time, millions of times, thousands of times around the world of the sacrifice of Christ. Even the scripture is clear as a bell that Jesus was sacrificed once. But for them, they see there, that is Jesus. That is the reality. And so they look at earthly priests. They look at an earthly temple. They look at an earthly sacrifice. What we're saying to our friends, all of our friends, is... 
that the earthly doesn't exist any longer. And even the earthly that did exist was only a temporary symbol. And the reality where we worship, when we go to church on Sabbath, we should have in our mind a picture of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary interceding for us. We should understand that we do have a temple, that we come to that temple, that we worship at that temple. And this world is simply the courtyard. But we have a temple. We have a sacrifice who's a living sacrifice, who's been sacrificed once. And we have a high priest. We have a papa, if you please. We have not an earthly pope, hallelujah. We have a heavenly father and we have a heavenly savior and a heavenly high priest. And as Adventists, we too often lose sight of that. And our worship sometimes becomes too common. To give my friends some credit, they have a sense of reverence sometimes that we could certainly imitate. And I believe the only way we get that worship reverence like it ought to be is to understand that when we walk into that sanctuary, humble though it may be, we walk in to worship Jesus, not here, but there. You understand what I mean? That doesn't mean His presence isn't here. I don't mean to understand that. But there is a real temple that we worship at, and we ought to go into that with great reverence. I hope for a great awakening, and I believe when that awakening comes, we'll see this whole thing in a different light. Thank you. God bless you. Let's pray before you go. Father in heaven, thank you for helping us. Bless us during this seminar and all the others that are going on. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.